When I was 19 years old, I enlisted in the United States Army. I went off to basic training almost exactly one year after I graduated from high school. It was during the summertime. It was very, very hot. Uh, I remember a whole lot of experiences from that time, and it was very forming to my personality. Uh, going through basic is an interesting endeavor. As a young person, it's a painful endeavor. There's a lot of uh, growing up that you must do, being away from your family, being stuck in a barracks or a little cell with 90 men crammed in there for three months. But one of the memories that I remember most was an experience where they woke us up in the middle of the night and they ushered us to a location. I can't remember they put us in the back of cattle vehicles or whether we marched there, but I just remember we went to this unknown place that I've never been to and it was dark and it was a field and it was nothing but dirt or mud and there was barbed wire. And what they wanted us to do was they wanted us to low crawl from the beginning point all the way out into a point that we really even couldn't see. It was just really dark, and it was really far, and there was barbed wire, and we needed to low crawl on our hands and knees under the barbed wire to that destination. And they told us, which I believed them at the time, but now I question it, but they told us that there was live gunfire going above the barbed wire so that if we were foolish enough to stand up, not only would we have to go through barbed wire, but we'd end up being shot and killed. So we crawled and crawled and crawled until we finally made it to that destination. So why did they do this? What was the point of this training? Well, I think there was a whole bunch of reasons. One, it was to develop grit and determination. There's a certain level of strength that it takes to crawl in the mud for a long period of time under what you potentially think is gunfire. The other reason they wanted to do this was because this is something that could become relevant in a battle circumstance. It could be a circumstance where you needed to crawl under gunfire or you needed to crawl to enter into the enemy's camp without being detected. This was a technique to go undetected or to survive. Well, today we're going to look at a passage where an enemy has essentially low crawled into our camp and has come in undetected. And so how should we respond to this enemy who has snuck in to our camp? That's what we're going to be looking at today. Please open your Bibles to Jude. There's only one chapter. Chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4. Jude, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, so far we have have explored the author of this little book, Jude, Jude, the little brother of Jesus, We have seen the description of the audience, which is ultimately a description of us, Christians. They are the called of God. They are beloved in union with God the Father. And they are kept blameless by God the Father for Jesus Christ as a love gift offering. So now we move from the author, description of the audience, to now the purpose of this little epistle. 
Jude says that he wanted to write a letter writing about their common salvation. He wanted to dwell and bask in the fact that God had saved him and them, that they were co-heirs with Christ, that they were headed to a golden city where pain and death and suffering would forever be banished. He wanted to dwell on a positive, the positive things of our faith in our Christianity. He wanted to encourage his audience to not look to the things that are seen, to the corrupting world, to destruction, but rather to that which is not seen, to God and his kingdom and his promise. But instead of writing that very positive letter, that letter that we find really encapsulated throughout the Bible, we find these kind of things in all of the epistles of the Bible. Instead of writing that primarily positive letter about living a quiet and gentle life and enjoying God's blessing, he rather had to write this letter. And this letter is a letter where Jude is raising the alarm. He's running back into the city and saying, close the gates. He's getting on the tower and ringing the bell, saying the enemy is on its way. Now, Jude is no alarmist, and Jude is no little boy who cries wolf, but rather Jude is an elder of elders. He's one of the leaders of the early church, and he's fought these wars day in and day out. And Jude is now passing off of the scene, and before he goes, he wants to raise the alarm one more time and warn people that there are wolves that they will face. The wolves are continuing to infiltrate the church, and we must fight these wolves. Now, what is the intent of a wolf? Well, even in the term wolf, we should kind of see what the intent is. Everyone knows that little child story where the little girl goes to grandma's house and grandma's been eaten by the wolf and the wolf is now dressed up as grandma. And what is the intent of the wolf? To eat the little girl like he ate grandma. And that's what wolves do. Wolves eat sheep and we are, of course, sheep. So these wolves, their desire, their goal is to eat us for lunch. Their desire ultimately is the same as their father, the devil. And Jesus says about the devil in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And this is a really glorious and wonderful passage because as we are tempted to be lured by the world, the flesh, and the devil, let us remind ourselves that no matter what they say they're selling, in the end... Their desire is only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So that's their goal, just like their father. They want to come to steal and to kill and destroy. In fact, the devil, their father, has planted them in the church for that very purpose. In fact, Jesus gave a parable describing Satan planting people in the church. And we find that parable in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Here's what it says. Jesus put another parable before them, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? Who then does, how then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So in this parable, the man who planted the good seed in his field is Jesus. The good seed is believers, hopefully all of us. The field represents the world, which is the church spread throughout the world. And there's an enemy who sneaks into the field at night when no one's watching and plants bad seeds. 
and those are unbelievers. He plants these bad seeds in order to disrupt the church. And what's surprising, though, is that God has permitted Satan to do this. And why has he done this? Well, he's done this for several reasons, but one of the reasons is in order to test us, to see whether or not we'll be obedient to the Lord and obey Christ's call to keep his church pure. If we never had any enemies, never had any infiltrators, we would never be tested whether we would truly obey God when he says to keep his bride pure. And so in the situation that we're in, we're left with fighting two battles on two fronts. We have the battle with the world outside. The world, the flesh, and the devil are fighting us, and they're seeking to destroy the church and eradicate it. They want this building gone. They want you all gone or deconverted and converted onto paganism, unto unbelief. But we also have another front. We have to fight the battle from the inside. And these insiders, insider threat, maybe some of you who work in the intel world know this term, insider threats are coming in to destroy the church from the inside. But their destruction, they're fine with the building. They just want to gut it. They're fine with your outward expression of religion, but they just want to corrupt the religion. So unbelievers, the world wants to destroy you, obliterate you, while insider threats, unbelievers sneaking into the church want to corrupt you, but in the end, they both want to destroy you. And so we have these two battles. We have to have, we have to put our troops to fight both attacks from the front and from the rear. Now, for those who are familiar with the military, you know that the insider threat is the most dangerous threat because they're the ones who know all of your secrets, and they're also the ones that you're not guarding against. You don't expect the person beside you, your battle buddy, to shoot you in the rear. You expect the bullets to come from that direction, and that's why your gun is faced in that direction. So the insider threat is, of course, a very dangerous threat, but we need to be on guard for both of them. We need to recognize that maybe not everyone among us are truly our friends. Maybe some of us, in fact, unbelievers. And Christ has warned us of this so we can be on guard. But nonetheless, having to divide our energies with battling with two fronts is very challenging. Now, some of you may have played the game called Risk. Some of you may have wished you hadn't played that game because of how long it is. But it's at least pretty fun. And in that game... One of the more frustrating moments of the game is when you finally take over America, you finally take over Europe, and you think, I got it. I got the big bonus. I'm going to win. And then what happens? You start looking at some chatter going on with the other players, and next thing you know, you're attacked from one side and attacked from the other. And all of a sudden, your victory has turned into defeat. You hate the game. don't want to play anymore. The point I'm trying to get at is once you're attacked on two fronts, things are going really, really bad for you. But we're always attacked on two fronts which means things are always going really, really bad for us. And that's why we need a friend. We need an ally. We need to find the other player over there in Australia and say, will you join with me? Well, that ally, of course, is God. God is the one who can sustain us, but we cannot sustain ourselves. We cannot do these things in the flesh. We need God to help us not to be be destroyed by these two great enemies, the enemy from without and the enemy from within. So now we'll move to Jude's description of this insider threat, these enemies within the church. And we see that description in verse 4. He says, Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people 
who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So he describes these people as having a secret entry into the people of God. He describes them as creeping in. Some of you, maybe not, but if you look at the NLT, it says they wormed their way in. They snuck in. This is like a special forces soldier who would low crawl, that very thing that we trained in basic, who would low crawl into the enemy camp, sneak in, and then from the inside, blow the thing up. And the reason that he sneaks in is because, of course, if a special forces soldier just simply walked into the enemy camp, he'd be shot, he'd be killed. He must sneak into the enemy camp while they're not looking, plant the bombs, shoot the people, and attack them from the inside. But our enemy has already snuck into the church. He's already made his way into the body. He has not been sneak, he's not been spotted, but he is already in here. And now that he's operating in here, he's operating with camouflage. He looks like us. He talks like us. He smells like us. But the good thing is, even the best fake, if you, get it, if you give it enough time, if you listen long enough, eventually they will slip up. Eventually, they will reveal themselves as not who they truly are, or reveal themselves as who they truly are, which is not one of us. And that's simply because you can only pretend to be someone for so long. Right? Eventually, you'll slip up. Eventually, you'll say something that will reveal that you're actually not the person that you say that you are. And God has actually told us of how to detect these unbelievers, these people who are unbelievers and yet profess themselves to be believers. And he's told us how to identify them in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew 7, verse 16, he says this, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So how can we recognize these false believers pretending to be believers? By looking at their fruit. Now it's really quite fascinating I often hear people say, I am not a fruit detector. Maybe you should be. That is what the Bible says. We should be fruit detectors. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around damning people and claim people that are certainly going to hell, but we should be certainly people who look at whether or not there is good fruit on that tree because that's what Jesus said. That's how we identify these bad trees. If you look up there and all the fruits are rotten nasty, don't go around claiming it's a good tree because it's obviously a bad tree, and vice versa. If you look up there and there's all this good tree, there's all this good fruit, it's clearly a good tree. And don't you all do that when you go to the grocery store? You just go there blind and start just grabbing things and hoping it's the, hoping the best? No. You see and this thing spoiled and nasty? You leave that to somebody else. And you grab the good fruit. So we should be investigating people's fruit. We should test people by their fruit. We should recognize that an unregenerate heart is an unregenerate heart and one that is not led by the Spirit, but rather led by the flesh. And so people who merely pretend to be saved are in fact unsaved. They have an unregenerate heart, and so that their lifestyles will eventually reveal what's going on in their hearts. Now, the difficulty here, though, is is that people often pretend to be something that they're not. And oftentimes, people pretend to be one thing in public 
and they're completely a different person at home. They put their best face in on church, pretending that everything's all put together, but you go talk to wife, you go talk to the kids, and you find out maybe this person, in fact, does not have everything put together. Maybe this person, in fact, is a monster. Now, let me first say this. If you have the ability to portray yourself one way in public, but in fact, you are the opposite way in private, this is not impressive. This is not some kind of amazing skill. You are not a double agent. You're fraud. It's not impressive. It is shameful. And let me tell you this. If you're doing this, if you know how to switch it up, to make people think you're one way, but in fact you're not, you need to repent. You need to stop. That's something you have to be very, very careful about. Let us always be authentic people and be who we say that we are. Now, none of us are perfect. I'm not talking about imperfection. You don't have to put your worst foot forward in front of everybody. But I'm talking about being a fraud, about being a pretender about caring more about what other people think about you than what God thinks about you. God sees it all. You're not fooling anybody. You're only fooling yourself, and maybe you're trying to trick the people of God, which is evil and wicked. I had a really good friend of mine. This person actually is a true believer, but I had a really good friend of mine, and I remember them telling me that we were at a restaurant. We were at a uh, fast food, not a fast food, a Chinese buffet, and they told me, they said, you remember that time we had the Chinese buffet? Said, no, I don't actually remember. We went to a lot of Chinese buffets. It wasn't rememberable to me. But they said, okay, good. Because when I was with you, my wife was there too, when we were with you together, I was high out of my mind. And I was really concerned that you would know. Well, I'm really concerned that they were more concerned about me knowing than God knowing. Because God certainly knew. Let us be authentic people. Let us walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And the light here represents truth and openness. The darkness of sin loves hiddenness and corruption. Let us be honest people who are not living a double life, but rather living authentic lives. And if we are living a double life, let us repent of these gross sins. And one of the ways that you can show your true repentance is letting somebody know, confessing your sins to one another, telling somebody about the things that are going on that nobody knows about. Now, is this just something that I'm coming up with? Is this my good idea? If it's my good idea, you can chuck it away. But in fact, that's not my idea. It's the Bible's good idea. In James 5.16, it says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Certainly, if you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. John 1.9. Absolutely, confess to God. We are the only ones who have ultimately sinned against him. Nonetheless, we should also confess our sins to one another. Not just the people that we've offended, but sometimes it's very, very good to say, I'm tired of living a double life. I'm tired of having these secret sins. I need to come talk to somebody about this, and I'm going to tell somebody about this. So who should we tell? Well, find a righteous person. Don't find a wicked person. Find someone who's not going to slander you. Find someone who really understands grace and understands they're a sinner, too, and not going to judge you for it. I wonder what kind of person that would be. Well, hopefully that's you. Hopefully you're that kind of mature person that you could have someone confess your sins their sins to you, and that you wouldn't slander them or gossip them. But if you don't, you can't obviously confess just to yourself. You need to confess to somebody else. You need to find someone else like that. Well, one person that's a very good candidate is hopefully the pastor. 
Hopefully the pastor is somebody who loves you and cares about you and won't gossip and slander against you. And in fact, that is probably why, understanding this passage and who the most likely candidate is, is, is probably why the development of the system of going to a priest and confessing their sins came about. It was probably a good thing that went amok and went crazy. It went from a good idea to corruption and sin. But nonetheless, it's still a good idea to go find a godly person. It doesn't have to be the pastor, but the pastor is a good candidate to go and confess your sins. Have some male accountability. Have some female accountability. Go and tell somebody if you're doing these things. So that's what we should do personally if we are living these sinful, corrupt lives in our hidden, in our secret lives. But here, these people are living these double lives, but they're not interested in repenting. They're not interested in confessing their sins. They have snuck in and they want to remain hidden. They have mold growing in the darkness. They're not interested in opening the light and allowing that mold to die. So how do we discover these people? Well, sooner or later, based on the providence of God, they'll slip up. Some gross and horrible sin will come out, the curtains will be open, and we'll see the dead man in the room. And once this happens, what should we do? How should we respond as a church? What the scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 18, we should confront the individual. If it's only one person who knows about it, then one person confronts them. If they refuse to listen to that one person, they take two or three, and they confront them about it. Usually, this two or three will be two or three elders. And they refuse to listen to the two or three elders along with the person, then they would tell it to the church, and they refuse to listen to the church. Then they would be removed from the body altogether. That is what Matthew 18 says. Now, this, of course, is a sobering reality. It's something that nobody wants to do. Church discipline is messy. I don't know if anybody has ever seen church discipline happen, but it's messy. And usually, it splits the church. Usually, not only does that party end up leaving the church, but their unbelieving or very immature Christian partners and friends in the church also end up leaving the church. It's a very messy thing, but nonetheless, it is the way that God purges and cleans his church. It's not our good idea, it's Christ's good idea, and it also gives us an opportunity to obey the command in this scripture, and that is to contend for the faith. To contend, the word contend there also can be translated accurately in the Greek, to fight, to battle. Now, I grew up a very ungodly individual, and I had gotten into a whole lot of fights growing up. This was just a part of life. And if you ever got into a fight, I mean a, a real fist fight, things get ugly. You get busted lips, busted nose, busted eyes, busted hands. Things get really ugly. They get messy. It hurts. But this is what we're called to do. We're called to fight. We're called to fight for our lives. If someone's attacking you, you have no choice but to fight for your life. And so, too, we must fight for the fortress of God's army. We must fight to protect other believers for the camp. We cannot allow an unbeliever just to roam around in the church. Why? Because they're seeking to destroy it. It's not loving. People say it's not loving to do church discipline. It's not loving to allow an unbeliever to lurk around the church seeking whom he may destroy. We must attack. We must fight. And as we expel this person from the body, our hope is... In fact, this person is not an intruder, but rather a believer who had a bad day, a bad season, a bad year. A believer who has backslidden. And we will only find out if they are a believer or a true intruder by how they respond. A true believer, based on the Lord's discipline, will repent and be restored. While a false believer will go out and not come back. They will go and continue to stiffen their neck and refuse to repent. 
So that is the situation. There are these people who have snuck in the church, and we are to seek them out. We are to be on the guard, and as they expose themselves, we are to execute proper discipline against them in love and not in hate. So now let's go on to see a further description of them. We've seen that they have crept into the church. They are further described as those who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They're also described as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll look at these three descriptions. Those are the people who have been designated for this condemnation long ago. They're ungodly people and they're perverters of the grace of God. So what does it mean that they have been designated for this condemnation from long ago? Well, I'll have you know that the literal Greek doesn't use the word designate, but rather it says that they were those who long ago were written beforehand for this condemnation. So instead of the word designation, it says written beforehand. Now the question is, well, who's writing and when did they write? Now there are two possibilities about who is the author, who is writing this thing about them. The first is that it would be God. God is the author, and he wrote this from eternity past. It's a metaphorical book, and it describes that God's plan and purpose for the universe. The second possibility is the author is a prophet or an apostle, and they wrote it at some previous time where they wrote, a, wrote this prediction about the coming of these false prophets and teachers. Now, verse 14 of Jude somewhat strengthens the idea that this passage may, in fact, not be referring to God, but rather should be referring to prophets or apostles of the past. So look over to verse 14. Verse 14 says this, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have, done, they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And we're running out of time, but if you look, scan over to verse 17 and 18, it also talks about the predictions of the apostles of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So it makes some sense to understand that the Bible is full of these warnings that there will be false sheep, there will be false prophets, that they will come and infiltrate the church. So this passage would simply be saying that previously the prophets, the apostles, warned beforehand of these people, and these people have now fulfilled those previous prophecies. Either interpretation is biblical and true. It's a little bit challenging to know what exactly is being met by this passage. But I ultimately think that it probably refers to the first interpretation, namely that God is the author, and the book here refers to a metaphoric description of God's plan. And the main reason I think this is because it just says that it's, they have been written beforehand. There, there's no subject mentioned, and the book is not identified. It'd be very easy to say it was written beforehand by the prophets, and blankety-blank. The very fact of the lack of information here seems like a case of something we call a divine passive, where that you just have it in this form, and it's understood that the subject of the verb is, in fact, God. The other thing I would point to to say that this is probably referring to God's plan uh, being executed in time is the parallel passage in 2 Peter chapter 2. And Jim read this, but for brevity, I'll just read verse 3. Verse 3 says this, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
And so the idea is, is that these people have been prophesied by God, that God had long beforehand planned that they, we as a church would be dealing with false prophets. And the very fact that they are here today is a fulfillment of God's plan. And the reason they're not destroyed right now isn't because God is sleeping, isn't God, because God is simply idle or that God won't destroy these people, but rather because God has a plan, namely for us to battle them until he comes and then he will destroy them. If you flip over to the next chapter of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, he says that very thing, that people will come and they'll scoff and say, where is his coming? He says that the Lord is not idle, but he's long-suffering, not wishing that any of you should perish, referring to the elect. So for all of those reasons, I think it's most likely uh, that this passage is, is referring to the fact that God has designated, God has a plan and design that these people would be the people that we'd be battling in the church. Now this brings up a problem and a difficulty is, well, what does it mean? What is the idea that people have been appointed for this condemnation? Right? Is this teaching some kind of fatalism? Did God take some innocent people out there and say, you, you, and you, I'm going to make you Judas, and I'm going to make you like Judas, and I want you to go into church and wreck havoc. Is that what's going on here? And I think absolutely not. God is the great restrainer. The idea is this, that God from all of eternity has planned and designed to allow Satan, that's what we saw in the parable, right? Allow Satan to plant wicked people in the church. And God has permitted this for our good. And then God will ultimately punish these people that he permitted to attack us because they did, not, they did this based on their own will. They were not forced against their will to do this very thing. And we actually have an example of this in the case of Judas. Judas was somebody that was written beforehand, that was prophesied to do what he did. But that in no way made him a puppet, and that in no way made him not responsible for that which he did. And here's what Matthew 26, verse 24, says about Judas. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So God is so powerful that he can designate Judas and all the false prophets to come and to do their damage. But at the same time, he doesn't have to plant the evil thought in them. He just merely permits them to do their evil, and that's why he will judge them for that wickedness. He can appoint evil without being the effect, without causing and bringing about the evil that caused the very thing to happen in the first place. Now, this might be confusing, and people get all confused about this, but let us just remember this. God can plan, he can purpose, and he can permit evil for the greater good, and yet people can still be 100% responsible for their sin. And in this in no way makes God the author of evil, and this in no way suggests that we are merely puppets. Rather, God is the great restrainer of evil, and he only allows evil when it accords with his sovereign plan and purposes. And this is why in Romans chapter 8, God can say, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Why? Because God is in control. Nothing can happen to you. All the hairs are numbered on your head. Nothing can happen to you unless God permits it to happen to you. God is large and in charge. His plan will come about. And we thank God for this. We thank God that God is not some kind of passive God who simply said, here is the universe. Here is free will. You all have fun. Hope you don't break anything. 
That's not the God that we serve. We serve a God who's large and in charge and restrains and stops, and he governs his people with angels and protects us, and anything that comes at us is ultimately because God lowered the hedge of protection and allowed these things to happen to his people for their greater good. And that's why Isaiah 14, verse 27 says this, If the Lord of hosts has purposed, who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? This is our great hope, that we are protected by the hand of God and that God's plan will be fully accomplished. And I can say this, as we go through more and more troubling times, as we look out there and we see more and more danger, just remember that you're on the winning side. You have God as your partner, and God will make you through. That we will have the victory in the end. In the few minutes that we have left, let's look at these last two descriptions of the ungodly. Well, first, they're called ungodly people. And second, they're described as people who pervert the grace of our God. Now, we're going to clump these two things together because they're related. To be an ungodly person refers to their disposition. It refers to their heart. These are people who are tombs full of dead men's bodies. Their hearts are evil. And because they have evil hearts, then out of that evil heart overflows wickedness in their lives. These are unregenerate people. And these are people who, as unregenerate people, don't like godliness, but like ungodliness. They don't like holiness, but they like unrighteousness. And so what they do is, since they don't want to live a holy life, and yet God in his word said, you shall live a holy life, they decide that they're going to make God after their own image. This is the felt needs gospel. This is come as you are and stay as you are. These people want Christ, but they want to make Christ serve them. They want God to be their genie. They love wickedness, and they want God to get along with their plan. And so in order for them to do this, they must pervert grace and turn it into sensuality. Now, in the ESV, it says pervert, but the literal Greek says to transfer. They're transferring. They're trading in grace, perverting it, twisting it, and coming out the other side with sensuality. And this is the exact thing that Paul was accused of doing, which was not true of Paul, but is true of them. In Romans 3, 6, Paul says this, And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just? Paul said, I never said that. That is utter slander. And people who say that, I say that, they deserve nothing but condemnation. Or in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. What it appears that these teachers responded very differently. They said, absolutely, we should sin that grace may abound. Absolutely, that ultimately, the more we sin, the more God's grace is upon us, and God is okay with it. They taught that Paul really did not understand grace, but they did. That Paul was old-fashioned. He was nothing but a stick in the mud. He was a killjoy, but they were preachers of liberty and freedom. They had evolved on, on the issue. They had come to see that those old people, those old Puritans, they didn't know what was really true, but they do. And what is Jude's response? Look at verse 3. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude's response is saying, no, this is not innovation. This is perversion. They have not evolved. They have de-evolved. This isn't a greater Christianity of liberty, but this is no Christianity at all. They have denied their Lord and Master. These people have perverters of the truth. Verse John 2 says this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
These people say, we can say that we know him and disobey his commandments. They are false teachers. They are unbelievers. They have changed grace into sensuality. Grace is not sensuality. Grace is that even though you were sensual, God has forgiven you. Now God has put his Holy Spirit and called you to live a holy life. And he's changing you. And he is patient with you as you sin, but he certainly does not approve of your sin. Grace is come as you are, but don't stay as you are, because the Holy Spirit will change you. They have twisted God's word. They have corrupted it. And they have said that out with the old and in with the new. But we as the people of God must say we will forever stay with the old. Because the old is pure. The old is true. We have one faith. And it was once for all delivered to the saints. Not in 2020. Not when we changed our views on gender, on sexuality, on pornography, on any of these issues. We might change, but the Bible stays the same. And we must hold on to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I'll conclude with this final passage from Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Hopefully that won't be your response. We will not walk in it. But walk in the ancient paths. Go back into God's word and follow him. He will guide you into truth. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father God, we thank you for the ancient paths. We thank you for 2,000 years of church history to help us from being deceived by some new movement, by some new idea. It's no new idea. It's an old lie from the devil. Lord, help us to have courage to speak out prophetically against our culture, against the world, against the flesh. Lord, we know that the enemy seduces us with things that are desirable, things that we want in our flesh. Lord, help us to resist the devil so that he may flee. And when the day comes that we must stand up for you, Lord, prepare us. Give us strength to do those very things. Help us to come into the light, Lord. If we're living a double life, help us to repent. Help us to tell somebody. Help us to be restored. In Jesus' name.